Today's sponsor is Kitcaster. Did you know that podcasts are a great way to grow your personal and business brand voice? Here's a secret. We all want to feel connected to the brands we buy from. And what better way to humanize a brand than through sharing your story on a podcast? Kitcaster is a podcast booking agency that specializes in developing real human connections through podcast appearances. If you're an expert in your field, have a unique story to share, or an interesting point of view, it's time you explore the world of podcasting with Kitcaster. You can expect a completely customized concierge service from the staff of communication experts. Kitcaster is your secret weapon in the podcasting business. Your audience is waiting to hear from you. Go to kitcaster.com backslash dismove, etc. to apply for a special offer for the friends and listeners of this particular podcast. Hello and welcome to Disability Movement Etc., a podcast that probably doesn't take itself as seriously as we should. I am Dr. Andrew Colombo Dagavito. And I am John Lepke with no acronym after my name. Oh, B B A B A with distinction if we <laughs> On today's episode, John and I are gonna be talking about quite a few things. We're gonna be talking about yet another Olympic Paralympic issue that's been going on. We're going to talk about activity levels among disabled people. And then we're also going to talk about some accessibility and quote unquote empowerment of the World Cup going on in Qatar. John, you did our interview this week. What'd you talk about? I did. I did. So I, I spoke with Rachel Voss, who is a uh, uh, former parasport athlete. She works with uh, tabletop miniatures, works in um, uh, adaptive and, and, and recreation generally. And so we had a chat about how tabletop can be part of the disability movement, about uh, how Rachel's experience in sport um, informed her ability to create uh, these spaces within games like D&D and how Recreation doesn't just have to mean bouncing a basketball or uh, slamming slamming a wheelchair rugby chair into another person. Um, it, it can also be uh, be things like tabletop gaming. That's awesome. Cool. I'm looking forward to hearing it. Let's get into it. It's been a week, huh? Um, so I don't know if you saw this story or not, um, but I caught it on the Disability Scoop came out of Colorado Springs, Paralympic swimmer Parker Egbert uh, reportedly was assaulted and raped by a teammate for over a year. He's a Paralympic swimmer and apparently now is claiming that the Olympic Paralympic Committee was complicit and negligent in allowing it to happen. This certainly is not the first scandal to come out of an Olympic or Paralympic Committee. And it's really, it's tough. I mean, Egbert, from what the article says, is 19. He's autistic, has some other developmental delays, uh, apparently also an intellectual disability. And he competed in 2020 at Tokyo in the Paralympic Games. This is just, it's a really hard story to read through. But I think it really highlights, for me, a lot of the issues with the organizational structures of sport. And I mean, the sad thing is, is 
again, this is one of many, but it seems that because it's even a Paralympic sport that it doesn't get the same recognition as some of the allegations that have come from Olympic athletes in recent years. Uh, I know you competed in and around Paralympics. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, as I always say, I got to do a bunch of cool shit, but never anything important. Well, for one, I, I will say that I think the level of engagement that a sport gets depends on the sport. Because if I'm going to give credit to, maybe not in the terms of this story, but if I'm going to give credit to swimming media, <laughs> um, which is a sentence that doesn't often pop into my head, um, swimming is one of the Paralympic sports that does get mainstream coverage within the industry mags within swimming that goes beyond like look at this disabled person swimming part of that um you know swimming generally but certainly uh paralympic swimming has a history of scandal quite often around classification and that they're not unique from the from the discussions had in wheelchair basketball uh or the classification scandals of boosting in some of the winter sports or like there's there's Sport has enough scandal to go around already. I, I, I think you're right that it, it does call into question. And, and according to this article, uh, Safe Sport, which is the uh, organization that uh, the USOPC created to, or, or liaisoned with to create Safe Sport, you know, what's name is what's on the tin. So, yeah, it just furthers this conversation about. What does safe sport actually look like in a parasport environment? Because there's certainly been, and this doesn't necessarily connect to the uh, alleged behavior described in this article, uh, there's certainly been a period within a number of these Paralympic sports where the training regimes and the approach of, of coaches and team staff has been very, like, just straight up borrowed from the uh, from the able-bodied version of the sport without thinking um, very much in some cases except when smacked in the face with it about the uh, about the effects on on disabled body minds I know there's there's research projects asking about parasport there's certainly uh, you know coverage of this every once in a while but yeah it, it's just it's horrifying when it comes out and it and it just shows how much further we have to go to understand these things. I mean, I'd be curious on your thoughts. I always think when it, when something comes out like this and there is less coverage of it, it, it reminds me that a lot of times disabled folks are seen as uh, like when things like this happen, it the sort of disabled person as benevolent angel trope starts showing up. And, uh, and that really hampers the critique that gets leveled at these things because just like people are uncomfortable talking about disability, they're also often uncomfortable critiquing disabled people when they when they are deserving of critique and, and further, really. Yeah. What stands out for me in reading through this, and it, it can be quite triggering. So if you would all have uh, experience with assault or trauma in particular of a sexual nature, you know, you can fast forward this part. We'll try not to and we'll talk leave, too much. Uh, in we'll depth. leave times in the. We'll leave yeah. times in the. Uh, in the podcast Show description notes. for you to skip yeah. forward. Show notes. There you go. Yeah. What stands out for me, uh, a is Egbert. Um, 
he's autistic, which we know. I don't know exactly what his particular characteristics might be, but we know that sometimes autistic folks can struggle with social interactions to know what is, you know, typical or acceptable or know how to navigate times when there might be abuse or, or self-advocate because particularly in the U.S., so much education is focused on compliance and getting autistic kids to follow directions no matter what and sort of negates their personal autonomy when we talk about that. And the other piece being his intellectual disability. And it's, I remember back in when I was in high school over, oh God, 20 years ago at this point, hearing and reading about an instance of a student in my own school with an intellectual disability being assaulted and her not understanding the, the, the sort of the whole social situation about what was going on and sort of presuming or I guess trusting the individual who is ultimately their assaulter. And you, you brought up the, the discomfort that I think the broader public often has, one, in talking about disability, and I think we've mentioned it before, but this idea of infantilizing disabled people, particularly those with dis uh, intellectual disabilities, and, and kind of being like this, you know, like I said, sweet angel that just sort of going through and, and not recognize, well, this thing happened to the him as an adult, as a person, and that should not happen. And as I read through the article piece, again, one of the things that stands out and I think is a really, it's something that sport really needs to deal with is that I'm not going to name the person who did the assaulting because I don't want to give that person any more space than they probably already have. But in the article, they list uh, that person as being sort of an elite person on the team and and how much of of how often we excuse poor behavior by quote unquote elite athletes because we care more for winning and records and medals than anything else. So their bad behavior becomes excusable. Well, and, you know, you mentioned the sort of the, um, you mentioned some of the things that we generally associate with an autistic experience. And, and I'm not saying you were doing this at all as my co-host, but I think oftentimes one of the challenges is that those things that have, that are murky between that line of, uh, stereotype and and good and and important contextual information for an interaction suddenly get weaponized as victim blaming well how could he do this he's also disabled and maybe the person just didn't you know pick up x y and z or, or you know we're constantly weaponized with our own experience i always think of this is a long way away from from assault but i always think of that uh, i forget who posted it it was getting posted around when when folks were worried about, more worried about Twitter dying a couple of weeks ago, where people were like, "Post your favorite like disability uh -huh. tweet," and it was one that said, "You know, it was somebody had left a note on a car, and it was just like, 
don't worry about parking in a disabled spot. You know, it's. They don't go out after five, which, by the way, originally was a plot. I mean, not originally, originally, but what was a plot line on Seinfeld. They want uh, Kramer saying they they want us to park there. That's the way they feel included. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Which hits the neoliberal notion of access directly on the head. Thank you, Seinfeld. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. But, you know, these things get incredibly weaponized throughout society. And, and I, I, my hope is that there's, you know, that, that there's a resolution. I mean, we saw how messy this gets in the public eye as recently as a few weeks ago with uh, a stuff with the Boston Bruins where we have an athlete signed <laughs> who, to my knowledge, is still signed, by the way. He's just not reporting to anywhere while they figure out what to do sort of thing. And how, you know, it took a massive uproar for that hockey team to back away. And if I'm being pessimistic, they backed away for PR reasons rather than humanity reasons. And this is this is all, you know, part of the same sort of level of devaluing of of disabled lives and disabled experiences really i mean i can't think of really any professional season of any sport disabled or non that there isn't some athlete that has some kind of scandal around this and i know there's football american football tends to to be a major stake because it's obviously the most sport of choice for most folks, in, at least in the U.S. Inevitably, there's an athlete that has very credible accusations against them. And you're right, the, the team might step back for a little bit. They, you know, they don't, uh, they don't do a lot of marketing stuff. Maybe they, they sort of do a passive aggressive kind of non or you know statement that is condemns it but not really condemns it and then ultimately because of this is the way the media cycles go that ultimately we forget about it and move on to the next thing and nothing really ever gets addressed and it it's a weird thing i don't know if it's it's probably it's not exclusive to sport but in sport because it holds a certain place in society where athletes gain celebrity for their accomplishments and and they should be celebrated right i mean it is athletic achievement is sort of in my view very a celebration of the possibility of human function yet when somebody does something so horrific we're like yeah but the, but look at this record look how far they can throw a football look like look how fast they can run look look at all these records and we often use their sports celebrity and excuse these other behaviors and it's really sad because sport is so powerful like i mean it, it i contrast this article from disability scoop with one i found in the guardian 
of a uh, Afghani Paralympian uh, who says in this article, like, sport saved him. It gave him an opportunity to, one, show his worth, even though people have worth regardless of sport <laughs> accomplishment. But he was able to find a community, particularly at, because if I'm remembering correctly, he was, um, yeah, he was uh, a refugee. He was forced to leave Afghanistan. And so obviously moving to a new space, moving to a new country, a new, a new culture, he was able to find a, a place of refuge in sport. And I don't know for sure, but I from my own experiences and and maybe you've experienced this too, John, when you find sport, you find people who may become lifetime friends and you, you find, or you learn things about yourself by challenging yourself. And then when something like this happens, I, I can only imagine that for Egbert, that swimming will no will never be the same for him like if he ever swims again and like he's 19 he has a whole life to live and he was already a paralympian he already competed and it's i mean i can't imagine the turmoil that's going through knowing that sport has that staying power yet we too often excuse those who have built up capital within sport for bad behaviors I think one of the traps that we fall into quite often in, in para-sport, I say we as if I'm still not, as if I still compete, I don't. But I think one of, one of the things that those circles can sometimes fall into, especially in North America, is because it's such a sanctuary for people, it, I think sometimes it's in a way that I'm not going to say it isn't for non-disabled sport. I mean, how many how many stories do we hear of underprivileged and marginalized kids using sport as a, a, a gateway to success in, in that has parallels with a with a disabled or crip experience? I think what what we sometimes fall down with, I mean, I've spoken on the podcast before about my critique of the fact that you know, a lot of these movements are led by non-disabled people. But my my other critique here is sort of that it's really hard to critique something that saved your life. We see this often in discussions about Canadian healthcare. Somebody who looks at their treatment and goes, well, I, if I lived, you know, a hypothetical person here, but, you know, if I lived on the border and I have a an experience that in in the US would have meant hundreds of thousands of dollars and here it's free like it's hard not to smack that in the face and and the other way around by the way for people who who Canada has very few specialists for it's also very easy to look at that and go god if I was down there yeah I'd be in debt but I'd actually be getting treatment it's really hard for us to critique the things that save our lives and I, I I just think there's a higher percentage of times where where that is true. I mean, in some ways with my mental health, it was true, not near the end. If we won't go into that, well, 
podcast isn't all about me, but you know, <laughs> isn't that all, what podcasts are? <laughs> in my, you know, where where I grew up, the only there were like two people that identified as disabled at my school. I saw five, six, seven, eight more disabled people at my local practice. The only time I was really surrounded by disabled people was, and again, it often wasn't the coaching staff, but was at these sporting events where you go into, you know, you go into a gym and especially the national team level, you know, there's not going to be uh, able-bodied athletes. And it, it really, you know, changed my conceptions of what disability was and and is and yeah I, I think that again it's just really hard to critique the things that save us and and look at it and go well actually it we struggle to talk about particularly the exit of athletes the retirement of athletes not just at the high level but when you just decide to step away like you have when you've been playing it at a high level and then recreational high level, and then, you know, I'm going to have kids or my job just doesn't give me the time to do this. You know, it's very, it's not, it's rare to hear of people going out on their own terms, really at the elite level of para sports, similar to able body sport. And there are things that, that exist. Canada has a program called game plan that I think has, uh, I've, you know, I've interviewed folks about it. I, I, and and I don't have experience with it because it was just coming in as I was exiting. I, I don't think, uh, you know, I, I think that any any program has holes. Um, I think that's true of that program as well. Um, and and the number of people who fall through the cracks of of that exit, which you know, I have hundreds of probably we're probably reaching a hundred at least stories of that that I can just think of, and. Yeah, we uh, we struggle to see the barriers. I, I think a number of parasports are doing a much better job of of going to going to other countries and supporting sporting development without it falling into that sort of like missionary framework. Of yes, like we go there and we are parasport evangelists, and you know we will show up and we will drag these people out of poverty. There's a, lives, there's a bit yes. more understanding now of like, right, let's start at the baseline. <laughs> you know, like we can hold a basketball camp, but what are the material conditions of the folks that we are supporting? And and what does that what does that mean? It's the piece of sport, I think, and what makes it so hard to critique sometimes is that Sport is pretty universal across cultures, right? Like no matter what part of the world you're from, there's some kind of sport, right? It might not be the commercialized product that we have in Western countries uh, like you and I are in, but you can go just about anywhere and you see people playing soccer. You, you see people playing games and if 
the Olympics and the World Cup and any of those things have taught us anything is is that sport can be used as a vehicle to bring quite disparate people together for a common thing. And also not to be a giant pessimist, but also as a force for violent nationalism. <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah. And we're going to we're going to talk about some some sport washing a little bit later, for sure. I think in, in terms of your the idea of retirement or leaving sport or when sport something happens in a sport like has happened to the, the gentleman in the story. It, it cuts to the core for so many of us, I think, because because sport becomes part of our identity, right? You know, we're, we're no longer, a, for many of us, we're no longer a person who runs or we're no longer a person who just plays a sport. We're a runner or we're a Paralympian or we're, a, you know, we, we take on these identities. And you're right. For most of us, we don't step away voluntarily from those things. It's, it's usually something happens. In my case, it was an injury. I played rugby up until I couldn't play rugby anymore because I tore the LCL in my left knee. And I mean, that, that wasn't the only injury I ever had, but that was sort of the final draw where it's like, I had to make a real decision of, I would love to continue playing the sport, but there's all these other things in my life that could be potentially impacted from pushing myself in a sport that isn't going to put food in my mouth or, you know, isn't going to do any of those things. And it, it, it's hard. It was a struggle for a few years to, to come to terms with that. And maybe this is a nice segue into the next thing you were talking about, which is another piece from The Guardian. Um, that came out a couple of, oh, it's about five weeks or five months old at this point. So, but it's, I think, still pretty relevant in the fact that apparently activity levels among disabled people have failed to return to pre COVID levels. I've got a lot of thoughts on this, but I'd love to hear what you're thinking, John. Yeah, I mean, I think when you showed me this when we were prepping for the podcast, my initial reaction was, no shit. I mean, I, I think there's just, there's a lack of recreational opportunities for disabled people anyway. I think sometimes parasport may be a little less true in the U.S. just because you've got more folks. But here, the in a lot of ways, there's sort of a... Our conception of recreation for disabled folks tends to be in the public consciousness, Paralympic sport, when really that's like 1% really of what recreation can be, which is something we get into, I get into in the interview with Rachel. The thing is, there's a, there's sort of a distinct lack of understanding of why that is. and. You know, I'm I'm excited. Um, I don't know when the book comes out. I'm uh, sorry, Sarah. I can't remember the name of the book either. But Sarah Kirchhoff, who's a, a, a disabled um, author and uh, and journalist, is coming out with a book about uh, disability and fitness. 
Uh, their previous book was about uh, a, a, a memoir, sort of rooted book about uh, autism. You know, I, I titled oh, yeah, something like yeah. I overcame autism and all I got was this frustrating anxiety disorder. Yeah, I think we struggle to talk about recreation outside of the para and slash or Special Olympics model. And I'm hesitant to do this because the model is so broken, really. But like when we think about something that was used in Canada called the Long-Term Athlete Development Plan, right? This idea that, you know, you have with titles like you know, train for fun, train to compete, train to train. I've always struggled as a society. The last thing in that Canadian model is uh, active for life. We struggle a lot of times to maintain those recreational opportunities. And so, and within a certain sector of the disabled population, and you can certainly speak to this more because it's your research area. Haha, <laughs> lucky you. I get to dump it off on you. Um, there is this, like, for folks who, I always call it the mushy middle, like the not people who, like, play parasport at a level where you've got, like, free gym memberships or you've got somewhere to go or something. But just, like, you know, rare to walk into somewhere and see, you know, you might see, like, one little hand, hand cycle machine drilled into a table that's 20 years old that that you got to figure out how to get, you know, you probably know the person that last touched it. Oh yeah. You know, it's that constant self-advocacy uh -huh. and adaptation. And, um, it's sort of like, uh, you can spoiler alert a little bit, but in the interview, Rachel and I talked about chair maintenance and, and, and how we sometimes fail to teach disabled kids about, especially wheelchair users about chair maintenance. Because of a myriad of factors, you know, the same is true of teaching people how to use gym equipment safely and safely for their body, just not not just safely for what the little sticker says, you know, and going, OK, you have I mean, if I take like a, a quad in rugby, right? Like it takes some expertise to know what muscles, quite frankly, are going to work. And and what's actually going to give value because you are really talking at that level about sport fitness, sure, but also just like functional fitness, life fitness. You know, we see so many parasport athletes, especially, I mean, this is obviously a comment at wheelchair users. You know, we hear often in NFL retirement speeches of rich guys, right? Well, I retired so that I could still walk around. I retired so my knees still work. And, you know, there are a number of people in Parisport who are wheeling around in absolutely wrecked shoulders because, and it's not like, oh, I'm just, you know, I won't walk as much. Like it's, oh, I guess I won't go anywhere as much. Right. Yeah, and that's, that was an interesting piece of this, this article. It's a, uh, it's a report from a study, I think, that's going on its third year at this point. But apparently, around 42% of disabled people in this study, they classified as inactive over the past year, which was essentially taking, as they defined it, taking part in less than 30 minutes of physical activity per week. 
And it just goes to everything that you were saying that we don't, we don't teach people how to be active. We teach people how to play sports. And at a certain point in all of our lives, no matter who you are, that sport is going to end. Like we, you can't participate, especially in like contact organized sports. You can't participate in those things. I mean, I'm in my mid thirties and I can tell you that if I was still playing, I still have injuries from playing rugby that are sore every single day. When did you stop playing? 26, about 10 years ago is when I stopped playing. And I played for about a decade. So I played most through college and, and into my young adult professional life. I think I was okay. I wasn't the best, but I enjoyed playing it. I made lifetime, lifelong friends. But my, my perspective of this also comes from being a physical educator. So in my previous life, I used to teach in public schools and I taught elementary school and I taught kids how to play and move their bodies and learn motor skills. And in my time from then, I've gone on, as you say, this is my topic area, it's my research area. I've gone on to look at how we do those, how we teach people and, and what folks have, what skills they have as they, they become adults. And disabled or not, people don't know how to be physically active. And because of the ways we pitch sport or even physical activity or how we define it, people think it has to happen in a certain way, in a certain place, and it has to look you a certain way. You've got to have the $200 Under Armour sweatsuit, and you've got to yeah. have this $25 membership, and you've got uh-huh. to listen to the loud music and you've got to know the difference between these three weightlifting bars and you've got to, yeah, it's all, it's all tied up in the sporting mentality. And also, I mean, trust a wheelchair guy to take a crack at running, but like, I remember being at appointments like for my, when I wrecked my back in 2011, which like further disabled me, but whatever. Keeping that long story short, sitting in a waiting room for some, you know, some physical therapy treatment and the whole room being the running club. And I'm like, and we, so we're overtraining. And these aren't athletes, like, not that they're not athletes. They're, they're not training. They're, they're training to stay active ostensibly. This wasn't like a cross country, you know, whatever. It wasn't the collegiate team, even though it was in, in the university. And you just go like, where, where do we go wrong? I mean, we went wrong a number of ways, but in our messaging about how sports exists, because I think there is a rightful resistance. And some Paralympians will get, you know, owly about this. Parasport athletes, elite parasport athletes will get um, owly about this. Um, but there's, uh, there's a rightful critique from from disabled folks who don't fit into the who don't fit in either by aptitude or physical disability. For example, you know, Ellers Danlos not being classifiable for the Paralympic Games, things like that. Rightfully frustrated at the Paralympians that that make it sound like sport is the cure of all ills. Now, I will say I, I think 
that 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 segment of disability community doesn't often hear out the full story from the parasport athletes who are in the know, who know how to take a sport like bocce and 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 bring it to folks who may be more accessible. Part of that is that parasport is so much smaller as a community that you often get this like, oh, you started playing and you immediately start thinking about the national team, even if it's like never going to be a thing for you. I think that's a that's a challenge, but it, just the activity levels of disabled folks and and how that shifts. I am horrendously inactive. I would. <laughs> uh, I'm a little better in the summer when I can go outside and do some stuff. But yeah, but what I'm what's horrendously the inactive right at now? Minus, it's minus thirty four C. So like <laughs> I have. With wind. So, like, an outdoor run, it's not brisk, it's spastic, you know? It's not going to do... It's not going to do anything for me. Yeah, our, our activity levels have been historically low. Um, I know this article focuses on disabled folks, but I I would also venture to guess that probably beyond the people who, you know, during the pandemic spent exorbitant amounts of money on personal home fitness things that now are trying to resell them all on Craigslist and whatever that like most, probably most people's physical activity levels are down. And at least in America, we don't make it easy to be physically active. We engineer our urban environments around cars, like, you can't walk a block or wheel a block in most places without running into some barrier. We have to go or we have to drive a mile to the gym to do a workout and wear uncomfortable clothes and listen to music that's far too loud and get on equipment that is sticky and sweaty from the last person who used it. And I, nobody likes, I mean, who, I mean, maybe there's some people who like that, but most of us don't like that. And, but yet we've defined physical activity to be that and not moving one's body. Like you look at kids and kids just move because they like moving and you put on music and kids start to dance. It looks goofy, but they don't care because they want to move their body and they just like doing it. And at some point, we it reminds me a lot of uh, Sir Ken Richardson's TED Talk, where he talks about how we, we essentially beat creativity out oh, of Oh, Ken Robinson? Yeah, Ken Robinson, that's it. I think we do the same thing in terms of physical activity. We, we force people in, we tell them to sit at desks in school for hours on end and then we replicate that in a work environment and we don't let people just move to get up and go and i think some people found a benefit of that during the pandemic because we couldn't go to the gym we couldn't go to these spaces and so we started venturing out into our own neighborhoods and started doing activity that like cost being one of the major things cited in this article it doesn't cost anything really 
I mean, you, you pay it in your taxes, but it doesn't really cost anything to use or go to the park in your local neighborhood. And I get there's access issues, right? There's not enough parks. There's often not safe ways to get to those parks. <laughs> the parks themselves are not well kept because the city doesn't pay for enough sanitation or custodial workers to keep them clean all the way down the list. But like, if you have a bike, you can go out and ride your bike. Of course, again, caveat that you have a safe place to ride your bike and you feel comfortable, but you don't have to don the spandex and have the $20,000 carbon road bike to do physical activity. Well, I do wonder, and, and you would know better than me, because again, you research this and I do not. I get to be the old man that yells at cloud. But I wonder how much of this barrier, and of course, this is, you know, you and I are talking about as two people who are engaged in these sport conversations. So like, don't please listen, don't take this as me like painting with a, I mean, it's a pretty broad brush, but not like painting with a whole mop or something like some of those artists do. Maybe I'll, that's how I'll change it. Physical activity has been so tied in the public consciousness in the last 10 years to the cure narrative that like if you just get up, we're seeing it with COVID, right? Like the whole point of conditions like ME-CFS and um, POTS, like you should not be prescribing physical activity, just like you shouldn't be prescribing physical activity for COVID and long COVID patients. But we're sitting here and then there's, of course, there's a resistance. If you've been told by a bunch of non-disabled know-nothings to do yoga, what's your first reaction going to be to something like somatics that may actually support you because breath work, physical work within accessible boundaries, if you've got the right practitioner. But of course, you're going to be fucking resistant because every connection that you have, if you're a non non-athlete focused person, a non-sport focused person, is that fucker just wants me to have less brain damage. Or that asshole thinks that if I eat enough broccoli and run a, and wheel around a track four times, you know, it's gonna be some magical cure is gonna happen. I'm gonna start walking because um oh it's the total you know, corrective like and then you just end up with people who are, what I find difficult is when you want to say to somebody, and again, this is medical model, this is purely biased as a parasport athlete, do not take this as gospel advice, but like, there are times where I want to find a way, or there have been ways, it happens less now, but there have been times where you want to say to that person, like, hey, if you know them well, and like, it's a crypt crypt conversation and all the caveats, but sometimes you want to say, hey, like, I noticed that transfer was easier for you. That's fucking cool. But then part of me is always like, oh, I don't want to come across as a cure narrative asshole. When really I'm just saying like, it's kind of the thing of like, you don't notice how much bigger your, your, uh, well, I don't have kids, but you know, you don't notice how much bigger your whatever relative is until you're in context with somebody who hasn't seen them in two years and they go, holy shit. Right. It's like, and part of this is the rehab model so focusing on the end goal instead of the small functional goals. But, yeah. 
as somebody with depression, there's nothing that makes me more angry when I may be in, in a low spot for somebody to just be like, go for a run. It's like, well, fuck you. If I, yeah, of course I would go for a run, but I feel bad right now. So I'm not going to. And, but again, as somebody who, and both of us are speaking as people who've had success in sport, I of course see the benefit in sport. And I of course recognize how much better I do feel when I'm able to go and do physical activity but I also recognize the privileges I've had in those spaces that I've had success and I've, I'm able-bodied enough that at least visually at first sight, people wouldn't assume certain aspects about my physical ability or not. And when we have particularly talking as experience of a physical educator, so Many people have bad physical education experiences and they happen at such an early age that it tells people physical activity isn't for me. I was doing a study a couple of years ago and one of the people I was interviewing had this just tremendous quote. <laughs> they said, it took me until I was in my 30s to actually enjoy physical activity again. And it's like this whole idea of, yes, physical activity is important. Yes, it's a part of our general nature. But we've constructed a society that has told the vast majority of us that we're not good enough to do it. And when you layer on disability on top of that, <laughs> it's just... It's laughable how bad the accessibility needs really are. And I think that ties us into our last topic for the day, which is the accessibility and quote-unquote empowerment of the FIFA World Cup, particularly in Qatar. And this is an article I found in Euronews, and I feel it was written by the emir himself. <laughs> Because it talks about all the things that Qatar and other places around are doing really, really well. And that, to me, runs counter to like every other piece of information coming out, particularly around the World Cup, about how poorly people are being treated when they are not of the privileged classes in these particular countries. And it really highlights what we were talking about earlier with this, this sport washing and how authoritarian regimes with, or governments with really, really bad human rights records, regardless of the type of person they are. And even though we don't read a lot about how disabled folks are marginalized in these communities. We know they are at an exorbitant rate because there's also disabled queer folks in these countries and there are disabled women in these countries. And we know women and queer folks are, are experiencing marginalization and oppression and sport. And this is not the first time that we're not mentioning sport washing for the first time ever. It's something that's been going on forever. 
I mean, <laughs> I was reading an article last night of, about this and the whole idea of like Mussolini prior to World War II breaking out, Italy hosted the 1934 World Cup. And two years after that, literally right before World War II, Hitler and Germany hosted the Olympic Games. And they use sport as a way to show off this hyper-nationalistic thing. And we forget about it. We're like, because we watch the sport. And I've, I've watched the same thing with Qatar and the World Cup. And it's been hard <laughs> as somebody who enjoys sport and enjoys watching sport and is kind of excited that the U.S. made it into the knockoff rounds this year. It really sucks that I have to like compartmentalize the fact that all this other really shitty stuff is going on while also the event is happening. And we just, we totally forget about it. And we see this with re, uh, multi-sport events, even down at sort of the national, um, the national level, not just the international level of like, you're at a multi-sport event and suddenly there's no homeless people. And you're like, oh, that feels somewhat intentional. And then you find out that they've sort of all been rounded up for a couple of weeks so that they're not, you know, what they used to do with the Pope, really. That uh, that happened. I just I, I remember hearing something. I think it was the last Super Bowl uh, in America, wherever it was happening. There was an article about how. I forget which city it was in, but that essentially, essentially they, they were rounding up the unhoused who were within, you know, uh, however many city blocks away from the stadium and just bussing them to neighboring towns and essentially dropping them off and go, oh, good luck. And I mean, the thing, I grew up in Michigan and I went to Detroit sporting events my whole life. So I went to see the Detroit Tigers back when they played in the original Tiger Stadium, not Comerica. Not Comerica Park. No, the original one that <laughs> that had a fucking couch in right field, like literally in the seats, <laughs> there was a couch that was a seat you could purchase tickets to. I went to the Silver Dome with the watch the Lions lose every week and I've gone down to Joe Lewis Arena when they play when the Red Wings played and for a long time I mean Detroit's a gritty place I love it it a lot of formative experiences in Detroit but now you know that that they've moved to these sort of newer nicer stadiums and they've put them in certain places in the city is you just see how landscaped everything is and how curated everything is around the stadiums but yet if you walk just a couple of blocks too far you're like oh <laughs> yeah Here's i mean our, our professional sports team is in the lowest income neighborhood there are more than one professional sports team, if there are any Saskatchewan listeners, but our main one is the Riders, the football team. Uh, we also have professional lacrosse and a professional basketball team, but um, football is making my point here, so we'll stick with it. 
Yeah. I, I, and I think, you know, one of the things that strikes me for the World Cup is, you know, there's some really needed conversations. And again, I'm a, I'm a straight dude. So, you know, take this with as much salt as needed, listener. But, you know, a lot of these conversations about like, we don't need performative people coming to bring attention to this issue and, you know, campaign and get thrown out for show around um, uh, 2SLGBTQ plus advocacy. And I think that's an, that's a needed conversation about when other countries feel as, or other, you know, individuals take it upon themselves to, you know, perform what this was. I think some of the teams were pretty, chicken shit about not wearing the armband because what are they going to do ban all of you you know it's it's the reason i mean it, it always makes me laugh that the, the the olympic ban on protest is also true at the paralympics when disabled people's identity is political our existence is political but anyway i'm going back to the point about it's, sport is political it's always been political it's it's never anything but for sure and going back to the, the my before i <laughs> I sort of leave the 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 uh, the note on the mantle piece. I guess about the um, about the connection. I'm cu- I hope that disability community in working on this stuff heeds that note of like we need to figure out the best way to support people in these countries rather than evangelizing about what disability advocacy should look like. Well, that's what it looks like for us. I, I think a lot, and this is a hop, skip, and a jump away, which is funny for a wheelchair user to say. But anyway, it's a pretty, it's a pretty big triple jump. But you know, journalists um, from from the south talking about how, uh, you know, particularly in states like Kentucky, where there's like stop seeing Kentuckians as one solo thing, one like monolithic group yeah monolithic southern lots of stereotype wrapped into our view of like a standard kentuckian um or a standard appalachian you know pick a pick a group a standard inner city detroit you know citizen um because what do we get or we get coverage like was it espn that bought a house just for kicks in detroit or that sports illustrated like one of the, one of the articles. This was years and years ago, but maybe it wasn't a sports mag. There was a mainstream sports outlet, that, or a mainstream outlet that bought a house to make a point, right at like the worst dregs of the of the Detroit housing drought, really. But how um, uh, flight away from the city. But you're right. Like Detroit, you would know the geography better than me, obviously. But like I remember the conversations about. We're putting the stadium in Auburn Hills. Like, why? Yeah. Why? No, it, yeah, it's always, it's a really funny thing. And I, th- I don't think this is at all solely related to Detroit. <laughs> it's probably most major cities where it's like, oh, yeah, this is the Detroit whatever sports team. <laughs> but the Superdome? was in Pontiac. 
Michigan, which is like a solid 45 minute drive from downtown Detroit. And that's where the Lions played. And, and it's, it's, it's just how we look at those identities. And I think, I think what I'd like people to take away from this segment is that rooting for sports and rooting for sports teams and athletes is great. We're not saying don't do it, but also I think we need to recognize when certain powers that may be use sport either as a distraction or in, in some form to excuse really, really bad behavior. And the U.S. is certainly not a stranger of doing really bad things to most marginalized groups. But when we put it onto a national level, it it can really drown out struggles. And when we add in that layer of disability, again, it can become that missionary, like we're bettering folks or that folks don't have the autonomy and agency to advocate for themselves. So we must swoop in and do these things for them. Welcome back to Disability Movement Etc. I'm here with Rachel Voss, athlete, sports and rec staffer, accessibility in uh, tabletop gaming consultants, creator. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. Great. So, uh, you know, you and I have known each other for, I was trying to figure it out a while ago, uh, 10 years-ish, or we've been Facebook friends for 10 years-ish, both when we were in previous careers, if we can talk about that. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, your your entrance into this stuff at at beginning in Parasport, or, you know, perhaps you're going to surprise me and tell me that it was long before that, but... Uh, can you tell me a little bit about how, you know, movement and sport has impacted where you are now? Yeah, of course. So um, when I, I was born, seemingly typically developed, and even when I was uh, like running around and I was playing sports, I was either doing martial arts or I was swimming or I was playing basketball or field or I'm, I'm from the St. Louis area. So um, I had to play baseball and then uh, my dad's <laughs> from Indiana. So I had to play basketball. So I had like a whole whole bunch of sports happening. And then uh, the day after Christmas 2002, I woke up from a nap and I couldn't walk um, due to the spinal AVM or arterial venous malformation that's wrapped around my spinal cord um, that caused a spinal stroke while I was sleeping. And then even after that, it was less than a year um, later. I was very fortunate to while, while I was in my recovery, um, having a physical therapist whose husband was on the wheelchair basketball team in St. Louis. And so she beat it into me and my family that I was still an athlete. I would always be an athlete, even though I now use a wheelchair, I'm still an athlete. Um, and so that was really important in my recovery. Like within the first two, three weeks of me, that was, that was the motto that we were saying every day. Um, so movement has, was really big in my recovery as well as within less than a year later, I was playing, um, wheelchair basketball. Right. And I attempted doing um, softball as well. And so um, I was 
I was just naturally good at basketball before. I felt like I was pretty good at decently um, imposter syndrome coming in. I mean, I did make Team USA a couple times, um, not Paralympic level, but um, uh, off year levels, I suppose. Um, and so I do have some like basketball skill, I suppose. Um, and I do feel all of my field records from juniors are still stand. So that's cool. And some of my weightlifting ones too. But, um, for me, wheelchair athletics, besides just movement, um, the socialization aspect, I had never seen kids my age that also use wheelchairs. And so having that connection with my team, um, and learning while we were at tournaments, just hanging out around the pool, how you get back into your chair. How do you do this? How do, or this is how I do it. And just learning through experience and learning through having the accurate representation you need to be able to do that was really beneficial for me in my um, development as a human. I, I feel as a disabled human. Um, and so I love our junior experience. And that's where I ended up going to the University of Illinois. And that's where we, our meet cute happened. Um, I suppose. Um, and we met at basketball camp, right? Or was yeah. I coaching at that point? Was I already? Uh, I don't know time? if you were coaching. You were. You were either. You would have been in your last year or still playing something along those lines. Because I went the year that I was at the elite camp, which is the year that I remember. It was the. This is going to sound. Uh, you know, we've got to name people that were there at the time to remember. Uh, this was um, it was the summer before Nick Gonshin would end up being on the team because he was my roommate and, and provincial team captain and all the rest of it. Hi, Nick. If you're listening, you probably aren't. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and one of those times where the, the, the sport and the, the basketball and the track people were all in the same room blabbering together, which is how I got to know uh, Jill Moore White as well and some of the other uh, track folks that I probably wouldn't have. You know, you say working at, you know, playing for Team USA in the off years, whenever people ask me about my, my athletic accomplishments, and I certainly didn't even get to the level that you did. But when I talk about, you know, like being on these exhibition teams for Junior Team Canada, I would say, you know, I got to go to a bunch of cool shit, but never anything important. And that's, that's just sort of how I, I, how feel, I feel that. about it. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah. And can you tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, now the work that you're doing both um, for the for the recreation, uh, you know, your your day job, so to speak, and as well as the, the stuff with uh, a party to access? Yeah. So recreation is really important. Um, and that is something that has been true to my personal life as well as my career. And so I am the currently the marketing manager for the Champaign Park District here in central Illinois. Um, we are the award winning. We are one of named one of the top, uh, 20 park districts in the, in the United States this year. Um, and so we've been working really hard to make sure that, uh, Champaign is an inclusive, accepting and fun environment for our community. And so providing recreational opportunities for everyone um, is really important for us and important for me. And um, so I've been in the recreation field for pretty much over 15 years because I've always been able to get a job at a camp at um, some special recreation or therapeutic recreation agency um, so that's always, I was like, you know what? I need a job. I'll just go find them because they'll hire me. I know they're going to hire me because it's kind of their job to do that. Um, <laughs> that's so, what inclusion looks like. That's what inclusion looks like. I know I'm not going to be judged because I use a wheelchair in getting a job at a therapeutic recreation agency. 
Um, and so that's, that's my day job is I provide fun for a living. Um, and then for my, uh, my side thing that my side passion project, um, I, my preferred form of recreation, um, is, is not actually sports. Um, I'm a super nerd and my preferred form of recreation is actually tabletop gaming. And I love, uh, Dungeons and Dragons and Cortex and all these different role playing games. And about two years ago, there was a designer who was like, you know what? I want to see a wheelchair user in Dungeons and Dragons. And so, uh, Sarah Thompson designed a wheelchair mechanic. And it got so much backlash and so much ableism towards the idea that this fantasy world would have wheelchair users and they couldn't be fighters. And I mean, I guess they could be magic users, but they wouldn't be able to get into the fight, really. They'd have to stay on the edge and they'd be a burden to their crew and all this hap- that stuff happened. And so Strata Miniatures, which is a, a company, saw it's like a gaming company that makes miniatures clearly for, for the tabletop um, games. They saw the ableism and they're like, you know what? We want to support Sarah Thompson. And so they made a line of miniatures. Their first four, the first wave, one of them is the elf rogue. And I saw it and I straight up saw myself for the first time in a fantasy world in a combat situation. And like at the time I had like long hair and I had the like undercut. And, um, that's exactly what the mini looks like. And I was super pumped and I, jumped into the comments being like, oh my God, I feel seen, all this fun stuff. But it was riddled with that ableism, again, of just like laughter, laughing at the idea of a fighter that uses a wheelchair and all this stuff. And it made me so mad. And so I was just thinking about, instead of just just being mad, I needed to think about um, a solution, how to, how to solve this problem. And so the first thing I thought of, um, some of the, the comments that uh, we were hearing was, um, it'd be too expensive for uh, these adventurers to have wheelchairs that do the fun, magical stuff. And I was like, uh, they're too expensive. We're in a now. fantasy world, aren't we? Like, <laughs> yeah, we exactly. can't, we can't magic some dollars together. Yeah. We can't just like, you know, like that like, be part of the environment, like that everyone gets what they need um, to be able to adventure. But no, that's, that's not the way that, that the Dungeons and Dragons, um, adventuring parties have been so far. And so we're seeing this ableism and you're like, you know what? One of the things I do to reduce the costs IRL for my stuff is to be able to do my own chair maintenance, to be able to, um, do that. I need a toolkit and toolkit and like toolkits are really good in like role playing games. And if you're proficient in certain toolkits, you can do different things. And so I made my own chair smith toolkit for Dungeons and Dragons and um, to be able to fix and make fantasy wheelchairs. And I posted that in a random group. It was my first homebrew and it's definitely a first homebrew. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but it caught the attention of um, my friend Wes. And uh, that was the first time we met. And we decided that Wes is also, uh, he, uh, they're a power chair user, uh, has CP. And they were also sick and tired of seeing the ableism that against wheelchair users. And so we decided we we're going to team up and create Forge Ahead of Party to Access to be the inaccessible guide to role-playing games. And um, right now we're currently diving into a big world that we've been designing for the last year and um, just really trying to design 
the story as well as the mechanics and everything within the game with accessibility first. Um, and yeah, and to match all of my worlds, my big, my big baby for the first of our four books that we're planning is, uh, Access Ball, which is the accessible sport that I have, um, fantasy sport. Cause you know, I've, I do love sports and I would love to be able to bring sports into this like fantasy world. Cause if you think about like how, how a fantasy arena could be, like I always think of like Blitzball, right? Like if we could, or like Final Fantasy X Blitzball, how could live that, if that could happen, if we could breathe underwater for five minutes straight, like we can do something fantasy wise. So I'm super pumped about, um, Access Ball and getting that, uh, published and going <laughs> yeah one of the, you mentioned earlier the the this whole like well of course like in a fantasy world they can't be they can't be fighters and they can't whatever and you know to go back to our sports experience like i remember being in in the uta university of texas arlington gym for the first time and seeing all the dallas wheelchair mavericks alumni some of whom are like i'm forgetting names but six four six five and you know it when you're sitting in the chair because they're this is going to sound odd to maybe a non-parasport listener but the people who have the as one of my former coaches used to put it the perfect proportions for wheelchair basketball like very long torso almost no legs so they they look way taller than than even they are and it's like well no those people are um and they're lovely most of them but it, it intimidating enough like how can this not translate into like a, a fantasy world especially in a history in the u.s i mean maybe this is going a little too sociological but like especially in a world in the u.s where like the conversations about disability are are so i'm not going to say dominated but there is like a significant like military conversation like conflict conversation to be had about like why these sports were created in the first goddamn place absolutely i mean dr tim nugent asked like started playing wheelchair basketball here in champaign um uh because he wanted his friends to be able to play after world war ii um where they noticed that they didn't weren't be didn't have access to recreation and to be able to have fun. And um, so he made a whole program. And that's why I'm here. That's why I know you. Like, it's because of that act of understanding that people with disabilities can do stuff. And they can be active. And they can be fighters if they want to. And they can be spellcasters or whatever they want in fantasy. As long as they have the things they need. Did I ever tell you the, the um, my, my one, well, not my only, but my one main experience with tabletop games? No, I don't think I ever did. So when I was when I not to make this podcast about me, I promise. But when I was I hadn't moved to Canada yet. So how old was I like eight? Um, I, I was in the UK and this was in the boom of Games Workshop and war, like the first post 2000s boom of of Warhammer. And I went to the Games Workshop and I don't know if I didn't have the self-advocacy skills to like ask to sit down, but it was one of these things where come come for nine hours and learn the game. <laughs> and I'm an ambulatory wheelchair user, but I stood for nine hours at a table to learn how to play the game and then could not walk for three weeks. Oh my gosh, no, that's terrible. Well, and like I look back at it now at like, you know, 29, almost 30 and go, well, that was stupid. Like, I mean, that's ableist language, I guess, directed at myself. But like, that's ridiculous. Why did I decide that that was that was a, you know, a, a, an accessible decision for me, really? 
Well, that and plus the environment that you're in, all, everyone else is standing. Everyone else was probably forced to like do that. And like for you to be the first one to like to say like, I like there's there is that inherent ableism in the room if if you're if that's the way that they're going to run the entire workshop. So clearly that workshop was not designed with accessibility in mind. No. And at the time, I, I, I probably walked into uh, probably used a walker to go into the workshop in the in the first place. A walker that, by the way, I got one with four wheels that spin. And I, I shit you not, it was the physio was like, why do you want one with four wheels? And I, I, I'm embarrassed to admit this publicly, but I'll say it anyway. It was because I wanted to dance with people at school dances. No, don't be embarrassed with that. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I think it would. My, the way I phrased it to my physio was probably a little bit more cringe than that. I'm probably editing, self-editing myself. But, you know, you, you mentioned about the the ableist environment of these things. Like, how do you feel we disrupt those sort of like first interactions with with these games? Well, it, it's the same with the with the wheelchair basket movement, right? We needed allies. We needed advocates. We need people in the, those positions who are able to make those opportunities happen. Um, we need people with disabilities who have the energy and time and resources to make an organization like we are um, to speak up against that and show exactly where these um, holes in disability representation we are seeing that is directly translating to the ableism we're seeing within role-playing games, which then is the ableism that how they see pe- people with disabilities in-game is how they see people with disabilities IRL. So what we really want to do, one of the things in tabletop games is that because this conversation is so new, right? Like you, you had said like the conversation in the United States has been going on for a long time. This conversation has been going on for decades, but in D and D, in role playing in tabletop games, it's only it's been less than five years, mainly probably less than three years that this conversation has happened. And so, right now is the best time to start chipping away. Like we're not going to make giant slashes. We're not going to take giant chunks of the ableism out. Don't get me wrong. We can nip away at people until they are comfortable with seeing people with disabilities and interacting with people with disabilities in game because once they're more open to these interactions in game the having a, another like a teammate a comrade that has a disability and still seeing them be awesome just like them once they're able to do that in game they're going to be doing that in their communities they're going to be able to translate that understanding and acceptance of people with disabilities right off that table and they're going to go straight to their communities and make a difference there and so it's i think it is so important right now for us in the tabletop community to really address this so that it It'll make everything else better. And I feel like, I'm correct me if I'm wrong, because I, you know, journalist, art, arts administrator before that, you know, whatever, I'm not, I'm not in adaptive. I mean, I'm in and around adaptive rec. And occasionally I do like, you know, pull back the form of glory and go do a guest spot at a, a university class or something. But, you know, you mentioned your way into, in, you know, your primary form of recreation is tabletop. And I find that there's such a bias when we talk about recreation to connect it to things like um, wheelchair basketball, tennis, boccia, canoe, like pick a sport, right? And we don't get back to those forms of recreation that are that are less thought about. Yeah, like going to the movies is recreation. Binge watching TV shows can be your preferred form of recreation. Um, playing board games, playing tabletop games, like role playing games, playing video games, 
that's recreation. Um, and it's important to, to acknowledge and understand what your favorite thing to do is. And that changes over time. Um, like I said, in my twenties, it was basketball. I was either playing or I was coaching. And now I'm u- utilizing that, that knowledge into my new preferred form of recreation, which I've been playing for like 10 years. Don't get me wrong. It's been a long time, but, um, it's still just, um, you have to understand that recreation is how you have fun. And yes, you need to like be able to be active sometimes, right? So for your body's health, of course, but recreation doesn't have to be a sport. Yeah, you mentioned that connection between parasport and and this tabletop work that you're doing. What lessons do you take from those at a guest 15 years of playing sport that you now are bringing into this newer realm of, of tabletop advocacy? Well... There's a lot of lessons that, of course, that you would learn through like adaptive sports to like, I, I could go into like small fine details of like making sure that you're setting yourself up for in like the space. Um, so that like if I'm play, I play of my, as myself currently in a weekly campaign. And so I utilize my wheelchair basketball principles a lot. Um, in combat, um, in understanding how I need to position myself to, um, be the most successful in that situation. I know that that's like super detailed, but then I like no. expand that out into design. Um, I think really the, I guess the not necessarily adaptive recreation principle, just like the an accessibility thing that I really try to grasp onto when I'm designing and advocating in the the tabletop community is the curb cut effect is um, understanding that we can design mechanics and we can design source books and how the materials and read and how they actually look on the page. And we can design all of these things with accessibility first and design it for people with disabilities. And then everyone would benefit after that, making sure that there's uh, yeah, that's the, probably the biggest thing in that wheelchair sports kind of realm, because when you are in wheelchair sports, especially high level wheelchair sports, you just become an advocate. You have to become the advocate because you are what is seen as the highest level of what wheelchair potential could be. I always think of the times that like when when my <laughs> when my CP is bad. No, when when like I'm highly spastic because it's I mean, uh, listeners, it's minus 34C outside where I am in the world right now. Like when I'm when and as an ambulatory wheelchair user, I always link it back to and sometimes I'll text them, but, you know, text former rugby teammates and be like, hey, thanks for teaching me to transfer because like I did not learn that wheelchair basketball because at the time I didn't ever really need it in the same way that that, you know, uh, some folks who who aren't ambulatory or aren't ambulatory in the same way that I am. Uh I guess the the thing that comes to mind is sort of like, yeah, I guess during a campaign, you know, if if you're getting attacked and you get flipped out of your chair, I guess you got to figure out how to get back into it. Yeah. And understand your like I'm playing myself, so I know how myself would do it. Right. But if you're playing a character that isn't like yourself, you have to think you have to know and like understand and take the time to really think about it. Yeah. Wheelchair basketball mechanics come into so many things in my brain all the time. Um, but oh yeah. And then fixing wheelchairs. That's definitely a thing that I am super thankful for that like translate like IRL. Um, having to do that IRL, but then in game, like being able to like fix your chair like on the fly is really, really nice. 
I still find so many people, and I, I was lucky, and former teammates will laugh because I was the first person to go to the team manager and be like, hell. But um, like I learned so much about, like there was a British program that I was part of that, I mean, this was 30 years ago, so I don't actually remember the name of the thing. But like they teach you to go up and down an escalator and like up a curb cut and you'd have to play tag with your parents and your parents were also thrown in chairs. And it wasn't like a simulation type deal. I don't want to go through down that whole rabbit hole. But, you know, the the skills or um, I remember one time on a national team trip and I won't name who was at fault for this because uh, let bygones be bygones. It didn't really matter that much. But um, I was the only person, coaches or players for the junior national team to remember to bring a pump on a trip uh that is a skill <laughs> i'm just saying like and be real mvp like if you remember to bring a pump you were everyone's best friend in the gym the entire gym's best friend because every other team would forget to bring the pump but you'd bring it and somebody would pop a tire and then you'd be borrowing it and then you were just hoping you you it came back to you at the end of the night really because <laughs> Or are you going to be checking everyone's equipment the next tournament? <laughs> yeah, suddenly you become the... I, the one thing I do love about rugby is the names that they... Because they have so many more maintenance and like mm-hmm. support staff than we ever had in basketball. I do love like the Seattle rugby team. They call their uh, their support staff that they have uh, the pit crew and they have their own shirts and stuff. And I, I just love the the like adaptability and accessibility that gets created when it's like, well, I blew my tire. I got to fix it or I got a limp at home and this is going to be a funny story. And that's the thing is that people with disabilities and people who work with dis- people with disabilities are such great problem solvers. And people who, like I said, people who work with us, people and then people like us, people with disabilities, again, I'm saying it like all the time. People are such, we are such great problem solvers. And that translates really well to role playing games too, because role playing games is just collaborative problem solving into a story. And so I just, I want to follow every single disabled role play gamer because I know that they're going to come up with some of the best like solutions to the, like the crew's problems. I get excited every time, less so in a tabletop thing, but I think it's applicable. Like when when I see, um, I've forgotten their name, so I, I won't guess as to which one of disability advocates, but uh, they're in Canada and I'll put it in the podcast notes if I if I manage to find it afterwards. But somebody had, they kept having uh, people grab onto the back of their chair, which is like such a common experience for for wheelchair users, especially everyday users. I find the parachair users have the version of this where people decide that they're like a shopping rack and you, or a, a laundry rack and they can just like put stuff on in the middle of a bus or wherever. But um, this person's uh, partner created uh, like ha- handle covers for their chair that look oh, yeah, like, like dangerous, dangerous little spiky things. And uh, BB's pins, there's a, a bunch of like cool looking compression gear and stuff. Like, I find that that sort of like, oh, I need it. I can't find it. So I'll make it. I mean, I always give the example of, you know, in wheelchair basketball, high five to the first person who realized that snowboard bindings made good waist straps, right? Like- yeah, those click straps. Yes. Um, yeah, click straps are the best. And yeah, exactly. That it, it was designed for snowboards or things like snowboards. And it's like, you know what? We could use it. Oh, absolutely. I love the look we use. I don't know about you, but I used to get a very funny look because you'd always go, 
there's no point in going and buying some $70 set of snowboard bindings. So you go in and you go, can I have the mismatched, ugly, you don't know where you found it? Can you bring out that box? And can I can I find two? I remember, and I do remember who did this. I was at a tournament once. A tournament that doesn't exist anymore in Toronto called the Spitfire Tournament. And there was something wrong with my fifth wheel on the back of my chair. And I went to Adam Lancia, who was a national team with Canadian. I said, hey, do you have anything? Because like my team's out or whatever, or I didn't bring enough of the right thing. And he just pulled out like a big toolkit size thing. And all it had in it was washers for the back of your fifth wheel. And I was like, yeah, this is somebody who's been in the sport probably like 15 years by then that was like, yes, I do have every size of washer that has ever existed. Washers are a hot commodity in the wheelchair universe. (laughs) But then I don't know about you. I find that and maybe it's just the circles that I'm in. I find that a much more common experience of knowing how to put a chair together from people who were in the sporting community as opposed to people who like weren't exposed to activity or weren't given those opportunities? Yes. I, well, the the average age for a kiddo in the U.S. at least, wheelchair user to start sports or getting active is 14 years old. And so that's a lot of that prime time learning window. And so either, either they're set in their sediment in their ways or their family is. And so understanding that they haven't had that active recreation for the first 14 years is difficult to to transition out of. So it takes some time. And then people either rely on their insurance company or they hire out to do their chair because they don't know and they don't it's they don't want to hurt it or mess up the warranty or whatever on it. But this is at least a manual wheelchair. I wouldn't even want to touch a power wheelchair. No, no, me either. The closest I've come is uh, the foot plates can tend to be somewhat the same, or at least they connect often in the same way. So the number of times that I have pulled out is not insignificant that I pulled out my toolkit and go, okay, I can I can finagle this enough for you to get home. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I can't do much more than that. Go take it to the local place. And that's that's difficult. That's so hard. Like to like have to rely on that. Especially for like like you and I'm I'm gonna make an assumption. Uh but like from memory, like you and I can flop out of our chairs and like screw some things together and throw some stuff around. But when transferring into someone's power chair is a you know, a, a performance and an event, uh it's a lot harder to have those discussions. And I think that's what we see when we have these sort of um Stuff up with airplanes and breaking chairs and stuff like one of the camps, maybe the camp that I met you at the the um, uh, I remember because they phoned me and, and I got an answer with uh, somebody with a very southern accent because it was Delta, um, which is ha- which I think is headquartered in Atlanta. So I, you know, whatever. That's why it sticks in my head. But like I showed up. They lost my bag. My chair was broken. So I played the first camp at this big thing where I'm supposed to seem important or, or good at my job in like jeans and like the most ratty travel t-shirt ever and my chair is bent so badly that i can only i'm really i'm going in circles i remember this oh my goodness and uh i don't know if it was bushy or somebody else uh matt was like right we have a hammer back here somewhere let's let's get it so you can wheel straight (laughs) and it's like okay but but it's like that's sort of like the the approach so often did you have I ever told you my like lost wheelchair story? 
If you have, I've forgotten it. Well, I haven't told the listeners um, that United Airlines on, it was, <laughs> it's one of those, I was supposed to show up, I was supposed to be important. I had just, um, that year is 2007. I had just uh, done uh, my first uh, IWAS team and I set a South African shot put record and all this stuff. I'm supposed to flying into NJDC National, uh, it's not, it's not National Disability Juniors Championships or whatever. Thinking, I'm like, yeah, I'm awesome. This is great. I'm going to be like, people are going to know me. And then they lost my chair. They lost my everyday chair. And they didn't, wouldn't like admit that they lost my chair and they weren't going to let me have a chair to leave. <laughs> and I'm like day one at NJDC. And so they give me a chair that's wide enough that I can fit my luggage in it with me. And it had a giant <laughs> red pole. Um, and so that's what they gave me to roll into the host hotel at NJDC. <laughs> And um, all the coaches were giving me shit because they're like, oh, we can bring our old chairs back out, Rachel. Like all this stuff. Luckily, Tylight let me borrow a chair all week. And then I had my basketball chair that was being that was drove there in a trailer. But it took them seven weeks to admit that they lost my chair. It boggles it boggles the mind. I remember one time I was looking out the window. I think I was the only one that cared because on the team that I grew up on, because in Canada, like able-bodied people can play. And I remember we were looking out the window and my team was the type of team where uh, at the time it was like, I used to fill out the score sheet as the youngest person. It was really easy because a lot of them were related to each other and a lot of them were four or five. So it was like, right, I put down six and seven of these people. And then I put down like the four disabled athletes. But we were looking out the window and we saw the uh, the like loading staff or whatever throwing basketball wheels at each other like they were frisbees and you like call the flight attendant over and you're like uh, i have an issue frisbees it's like i have an issue and they're like what is it like do you need a coke or like whatever and i'm like this, those two things that they're throwing together are worth like 1200 canadian total so like can it stop doing that or if they're going to do that can they at least not do it when i can see them doing it i would appreciate that Oh my gosh. I remember, I don't remember what tournament it was, but um, it wasn't international. But, you know, speaking about the wheelchair maintenance and stuff, I certainly noticed that when you, when you go to events, I mean, even domestically, and you go to an event where like somebody doesn't have like the, the provincial funding program is crappier or they don't, they haven't been able to do the thing where like, you know, somebody who knows somebody who has a wheelchair that you can borrow for six months until you nag your medical provider into something. You know, it's interesting. And I'd be curious on your thoughts on this, like when you see that, because the biggest disparity I so often see in disability is the equipment kids are wheeling around in. It's like, well, no wonder you feel like you can't do anything. You, Like you said, you could fit your luggage next to you. I mean, the, the free chairs that and I'm privileged, but the free chairs that they give you as a kid in Saskatchewan, they judge how wide they're going to do it by like how wide your feet are. And I have giant feet compared to the rest of my body. So like I was in a 16 inch wide chair. <laughs> I think this one that's vaguely in camera shot, although the podcast isn't visual, is like 13 and a half. Like it, I was driving in a boat, essentially. Yeah, and like you don't have, you wouldn't be able to use your hips and like your oblique muscles the same and right. Like it's, it is so unfortunate the disparity in understanding like this piece of equipment is not just like something for you to get around in. It's the thing that gives the person independence and freedom and not knowing how a chair 
how to properly fit a chair is so bad. Like even so this speaking of the me, my chair getting lost, I, I was, I'd never really been a part of the measuring process, right? Until this year, until a month ago, I had never done it as an adult or myself, like got myself a chair and I am 32 years old. And so like I, of course, was a part of the process when I was a kid, like when I was 12 years old and I got my first one. And then um, when I got another one, when I was 18, of course, I was part of the process. I was there, but I was, I had professionals telling me what I needed and I, both things were wrong. It was not the things that I needed. Like the first time they gave me four inches of dump. Um, <laughs> their face, your face was great. So dump, if for people who don't know, dump is um, how much uh, the back part of your, like where your butt sits, how much lower it is compared to your knees. And uh, that the more dump you have, the it's generally the lower abdominal function you have, the more less core function you have, you need more dump so that you be more stable in your, your seat. Um, and I, this is my new chair, I got an inch and a half of dump. So that's, that's like, huge difference and so but well, I was, and, and when you've got way too much dump you also put like way too much strain on your arms because they're always up here they're always like at your ears mm-hmm. trying to trying to get and then getting up curbs is like well i'm elbowing myself in the head essentially mm-hmm. and the higher your knees that means the more weight is on your bottom and more likely you can get pressure sores or um, just mess up your butt um, so, which is a big, bad thing. Uh, so I was just going off of the, what he told me. And even when I got my first chair, it was just like, oh, you should get this because you're going to be active and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, but then it it was super heavy. And so it wasn't until now after being in an athlete for over a decade, I finally know what kind of chair I need for my body and how I'm hoping that me knowing once I actually get the final product, it'll actually be the thing that I think would work the best for my body. But we're not going to 100% know until I get my chair. So it is... Yeah, it's anxiety-inducing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But I'm like, finally, after, like I said, after decades of this, my 20-year my anniversary is happening at the end of this month. Do you do that thing where you get yourself like a happy cripple cake? Because I do know people that will send their friends like happy cripple day. I don't get a cake. I maybe want a cake this year. Um, but I did have one of my ex's grandmas, um, saw the, a shirt that said, I woke up like this and thought, Oh, Rachel woke up disabled. I should buy her one. That's amazing. We and have I a, wore it. I wore it on, on my anniversary. Amazing. We have a, we have a rivalry here in Saskatchewan with the, we have a rivalry with every football team because it's our one professional sport, uh, except lacrosse. Don't get mad at me if there are any Saskatchewan lacrosse listeners. I don't know why there would be, but maybe if you're here in the weeds somewhere. And anyway, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, the ones next door, are the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And I remember one time I was in a mall and pure crip humor here, but uh, it was at a kiosk and they had all these shirts. And one of them said, and it was for like a baby. It was like a toddler onesie. And it said... I can't walk and I still hate the bombers. And me being me, I said, do you have that in an adult size? That's awesome. I kind of want to go cricket you that shirt right now. <laughs> I, I think, and, and this, I, I was once told by, uh, as I've gotten older, I think I, I'm 
more experienced or whatever, I think I've, I, my relationship to how I talk about walking has changed. Because when I was in parasport, like it, nobody batted a knife. I was like, I can't walk. There was no class one that was like, no, you actually can. But as I like broadened out who I'm around and, you know, more people who use power chairs or, or aren't ambulatory in the same way as I am, I sort of like I, uh, I shrink away from that thing. The, the thing about the chairs and like even if you do your best, I find like even if you have the best setup in the world of people trying to figure out what chair you should be in. At least for every day, in, in my experience, they always get fucked up. Like the first chair is always terrible. And I feel horrible. I mean, I feel horrible for that anyway, but I feel horrible when we see the sort of like newly injured 21 to 25 and you know that they're not going to get another chair for 10 years. So these formative sort of crip years are spent in a thing they can't move. And we just sort of, I don't want to say we accept that, but it 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 is it becomes far more of a reality. I feel like I wish there was like a better system of being able to get a new chair, right? Why can't we have just, I know it's different, right? It is different. Everybody's, everybody's body is different. So, but like have like an actual car dealership, um, but chair dealership, right? where you're able to sit in a chair and being like, ooh, I don't like this, but I like this. And you're like, oh, I know exactly like the measurements of that. So we can like piece it together because close is better than being not close, you know? And like eventually you fine tune it until you're good and you, but you need to like also have those education elements of why this is what is this called what is the center of gravity how does your body sit like with my body for center of gravity it took me a really long time to understand that i'm extremely like front heavy like i have like long heavy legs um my weight is not distributed in the back very much and so i need my center of gravity to be farther forward than what the standard measurement should be or it's super heavy for me to do a wheelie and that's difficult. Like if you're, you, it's, you're fighting your body, essentially. Exactly. So, but it took me how many chairs to realize that I am front heavy and that I need just a little bit of assistance on how my chair is set up. And it makes the like the world of difference. Like half an inch makes a world of difference. I found, I won't, I won't call out who this was in terms of a wheelchair provider because I don't think it's helpful. But I found that sometimes we fall into the like, Especially with something super, I mean, every disability is variable, but like for me, like I'd go to a provider and I would say, this is more in the sports chair realm before I figured out what I was doing. And they would say like, if I was like phoning around or whatever, this actually happened mostly with a rugby chair. It's like, well, I have the measurements here for this CP that we also know, like it would be like, it would be fine. It would, they wouldn't be saying anything they shouldn't be, but it would, or anything. I don't want to make that assumption, but it was like. Okay, but that person that we're talking about is the most, um, using medical model terminology here, but like the most functional CP I know within like my classification, if we were going to put it in basketball term. And like that, that like disconnect of like, you know, well, we have this person over here or you're a class one. This person is a class one, you know, a, a, a class one. And this other person is a class one. Well, there's at least one person that I know of who is a walking class one. So like, what, what use does that, does that give us? 
And I think you're exactly right with the dealership analogy, because like when I once I got smart about how to like get a chair that fit, it was like, I think I probably tried like 30 people's chairs before I like chose the basketball chairs. And I was like, oh, I went and talked to like the class ones and one fives. Like, should I have a little bit of dump? It's not like I can shoot the basketball anyway. So I don't really care about the height. You know, how low should I be? And bringing back to that, like fixing the chair, like it took till my whatever this is fourth chair to realize that if I wanted to do um, repairs, I needed single sided forks. What was I doing with forks that require like minute hand function to be able to like put my front casters back in? Right. Like it's these tiny, tiny things. Yeah. And it's even like cushion choice. Like. I I don't like the air up cushions because they always pop and I don't like the padded cushions because they're hard to get clean. And it's like knowing like even just the cushion of what you, and some cushions are good for others and some cushions aren't good for others. And it's there's so many variables, but you need to be able to try them and not just like order them online. Or you get fun weather things like my my backrest is welded because it snapped at minus 30 something. You know, because the, the metal just was on the side that slots into the little, it's a J-back, so the little, like, holder things. Yeah. Just did not did not survive a Saskatchewan winter. No doubt they were designed in Texas or Florida or some such place that was more worried about, like, it's wonderfully texture or um, uh, sweat wicking from the material. So I'm going to guess that that was what it was more focused on. Well, you know, to bring it back around uh, before I let you go, because I, I thank you so much for taking the time. Where do you see, you know, we've talked about this adaptation within, you know, sport and, and movement and all those things. Like, where do you see the future of tabletop, accessible tabletop going when, as you said, it's sort of in its infancy? The tabletop industry is growing so fast, so much. Um, fandoms, all fandoms across the board are getting their own role-playing games. So you can actually experience um, being in the Avatar universe or being in uh, Tales of Zadia, which is the um, Dragon Prince universe. There's, a, there's so many different um, RPGs that are being created now. I can see, I'm, I'm hopeful that um, more disability representation will be coming out of these um, games because a lot of directors, a lot of actors, a lot of writers and filmmakers are creating and playing Dungeons and Dragons and Cortex and all these other role-playing games. And our stories, the movies, the TV shows, all the things that we're, we're seeing, a lot of they're coming out of role-playing games, whether we know it or not. They're being born because of role-playing, whether it's in a standardized game or just writers spitballing role-playing. So I'm hopeful that if we can get our foot in the door, our crutch in the door, our wheel in the door, whatever you use for mobility, we can start seeing more and better disability representation in media overall. I have one more question about that, if you'll, if you'll indulge me. So one of the things that I'm always curious about, you know, we talked earlier about how athletes tend to, like even on the scale of parasport, tend to come in later. Um, and they also last longer playing sport. I mean, Pat is Pat Anderson is the shining example of this at the moment. But also, I mean, there are quad tennis play as in tennis players that are in the quad division that are in the late forties, early fifties, and still competing in the you know world top twenty five. I was saying the average field thrower is like forty. 
Yeah, because they they got to figure out. It takes them ten years to figure out their their crip throwing motion. I would imagine. Mm-hmm. A little bit. It takes time. The top two. I'm curious when we talk about these age things, like, are do you think accessible role playing is at the point where those conversations are happening about players who are coming to understand themselves as disabled, either in their senior, you know, at the older end of the spectrum of role playing gamers, or just people who are coming to disability later in life? We talked earlier about, you know, the age that athletes come into the sport, parasport, the average age being, you know, 14 in some sports, you know, it's really not rare to meet like a, even a collegiate wheelchair basketball player who picked up a ball for the first time at 20 because they got injured at 19. Are those conversations happening in role playing with, as people are either coming to disability later in life or as older gamers are realizing that they are shifting into that age bracket where disability is more of a conversation? I think so. This is really hard, like a tricky question for me to like formulate an answer for. This is true. Um, I do feel that there are, Game therapy is growing. Um, a lot of the time, like, um, I have a friend, Isaac, he, um, works with us at the Forge. He is a, like, a rec play care specialist in a hospital and uses, um, tabletop in role playing with, uh, kiddos that are newly disabled so that they can role play as these awesome, badass characters with disabilities before they even leave the hospital. And so they're seeing themselves as the heroes in their own story before they get out into the world. So they're leaving with this confidence that they wouldn't have had without experiencing it first. And so that is amazing. And I think that that happens regardless of whatever age you are. Um, a lot of the times in role play games across intersectionalities, right? A lot of people end up finding out that they are actually identified they're non-binary or they're trans or they're, they're, they're able to explore themselves differently and understand and learn more about themselves through role play. And that is very common. And, um, I think that would also assist people whether, whether they are newly injured, have always had a disability, whatever the case to be able to explore a little bit more about themselves and it would help. I have one last question uh, before we wrap up, uh, if that's okay. And that um, I'm realizing now that I forgot to prep you for this question. So it's absolutely okay if you don't have one. But Andy and I have this uh, thing that we do where we pick a crip or I'm the pessimist. I sometimes pick an anti-crip of the week. 
So I'm curious if you have a, a disabled person that you know, I mean, you don't have to know them, but who you follow or who you've seen doing some work this week that you want to, as the saying goes, give some flowers to. Well, I'm always, I always want to give flowers to Jill Moore. <laughs> I'm always trying to be like, Jill Moore White, love her, love her. So let's just give it to Jill. <laughs> we'll we'll give the flowers to, to Jill. Thanks so much for, uh, for taking the time, Rachel. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Well, John, do you want to get into uh, Crip of the Week? Yeah. Um, this week, you know, just in some of the work that, that I do both inside and outside of journalism, I've been reading a lot uh, and rereading. This is not my first uh, first time reading. But reading a lot of um, Mia Mingus's work on uh, access, intimacy, intimate access, and also this concept that she brings forward a lot in the name of of her blog and some of the other work of leaving evidence. And I, I've just been thinking a lot about you know as as Twitter implodes, <laughs> um, as we have conversations about the histories of these things, um, as we lose. Um, leaders in um, in things like the Olmstead case, uh, as as we do things like that, really important for me to think about. Like, who do I feel I have that intimate level of access with? Why is that? And and how can I leave evidence in a way that doesn't just um, re-traumatize me and the community as somebody who is. Um, Crip and disabled. And as an addendum to that, I've also been thinking a lot. Um, this is partially as I finish up the endless MFA, but uh, writing about disability justice principles and looking at the tenets of disability justice from from sins invalid and and questioning for myself where, and not from a judgmental place, but just. Um, so I guess the secondary crypts of the week would be the folks at at uh, at Sense and Valley for for spiking this in, or uh, highlighting this in my brain. You know, disability justice is anti-capitalist. I'm not a great anti-capitalist. I'm not a. I'm not a. I'm not a. Uh, you know, full capitalist. I wouldn't argue. Um, but unpacking what that means for me as a business owner, as a freelance journalist, and and how those tenants actually exist for me, because there are parts in the MFA script that that certainly talk about money and 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 business and and what that means for collective disability movement. What about you? Who's your crip of the week? So I think it ties in nicely to what you were just talking about, but my Crip of the Week is a group of people, and it's the UC Access Now group, which was initiated by University of California Davis graduate students uh, and is now expanded to five of the California system campuses. But they have been organizing and demanding rights for disabled students to access the California systems. And I think it's a part of that labor movement. It's a part of that justice movement to try to make sure that needs are met 
and we don't just stop because we have the ADA, but moving beyond that, and particularly a shout out goes to Megan Lynch, who was the founder and uh, original organizer of that uh, initial group. But they've been doing some great stuff, and I, they've got they've won some really important battles over the last couple of weeks. Uh, but they're still <laughs> they're still struggling, um, and I think they really need some amplification and support from people outside of California and outside of the UC system, because I think it's it what they're doing is eventually going to well it should but. Hopefully, it will spread like wildfire, even though I shouldn't use that to talk about California at the moment. But hopefully, it spreads across the United States, right? And that we actually start looking at how inaccessible, particularly college campuses are, but how the broader idea of knowledge dissemination and education can really be, despite sort of housing these inclusive and democratic kind of ideas of what knowledge should be it's still very very much gate kept so you see access now love what they're doing keep it up um they're my crib of the week fantastic conversation as always i love hearing from you hopefully everybody enjoyed we'll see y'all same in a to you weeks. andy see you see you in a couple weeks bye-bye Disability Movement Etc. is a Blank Owl production. You can find out more about what we're doing, including past episodes, show notes, and transcripts at blankowl.com. This show was produced by John and I. Audio recording, editing, and mixing was done by me. The music for this episode was composed by Adrian Blust. If you'd like to support our efforts, head over to support.blankowl.com. Early supporters will have access to full-length interviews with show guests and opportunities to buy show merch for anybody else. You can also support the show by rating it and reviewing. It really does help. Thanks for listening, and I hope you all join us next time.